Chapter Fourteen of the World's Lumber Room by Selina Gay. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fourteen: Animal Scavengers, Ants, Flies, and Beetles. Among the most valuable natural scavengers of Ceylon are the ants, for they never sleep, work night and day, and remove every particle of decaying or putrid matter in a marvellously short time. They are often turned to account by the naturalist who gives them his shells to clean, and finds that in a few days they remove every vestige of the dead mollusk, even from the innermost wells and recesses which he could not himself by any means reach. A bird or other small animal, if buried near an ant's nest, in a box pierced with a few holes, will speedily be converted into a perfect and most delicately whitened skeleton by these industrious creatures. The said naturalist may, however, have reason to complain bitterly of his little servants at times, for they are not discriminating, and unless he be on his guard against them, he may find his most valuable collections of insects either totally destroyed or cut up into pieces of a convenient size for removal. Ants have a special affection for insect specimens and the only way to protect these is to keep the legs of the table on which they are placed in pans of water. Even this does not always answer, as a thin film of dust will make a floating bridge strong enough to bear the weight of the smaller species. Against oil, however, they are all alike powerless. Mr. Wallace mentions that in New Guinea a small black ant took possession of his house, built nests in the roof, made covered ways down the posts and across the floor, and also occupied the boards he used for pinning out his butterflies, filling up the grooves with cells and storing them with small spiders. The red ants, which in the Moluccas frequent houses, are a most terrible pest, for, quote, they form colonies underground and work their way up through the floors, devouring everything eatable, it is very difficult to preserve bird skins or other specimens of natural history where these ants abound, as they gnaw away the skin round the eyes and the base of the bill, and if a specimen is laid down for even half an hour in an unprotected place, it will be ruined. End quote. I remember once, says Mr. Wallace, entering a native house to rest and eat my lunch, and having a large tin collecting-box full of rare butterflies and other insects, I laid it down on the bench by my side. On leaving the house I noticed some ants on it, and on opening the box found only a mass of detached wings and bodies, the latter in process of being devoured by fire-ants, as some of these red ants are called from the extreme sharpness of their sting. But then how are the ants to know when a dead body is wanted and when not, since their own opinion clearly is that the dead should never be allowed to remain among the living? They alone of all animals, so far as is known, are constantly in the habit of removing and burying their own dead, and indeed have their regular cemeteries. But while thus careful of their friends, they suck the juices of strangers and enemies, and throw the dry husks together in some spot away from their nest. Their slaves they likewise bury, but in a place apart, and are seldom known to eat the dead bodies of either slaves or comrades. 
Mrs. Lewis Hutton of Sydney gives a most curious account of the funeral customs of some Australian soldier ants. Having killed several ants which had attacked her child, she saw their friends come and carry them off in procession, each body being followed by ants which she took for mourners. These mourners were then apparently called upon to give their help in filling in the graves, which some did, while six or seven who refused were killed and buried without honour in a single grave. In our climate, ants are essentially carnivorous. A company of horse or hill ants have been seen dragging away half a dead snake of the size of a goose quill, and no doubt they do much useful work which escapes notice. But it is in the tropics, where they are omnivorous, that the work they accomplish is best appreciated. The travelling ants of South America start on their periodical journeys just before the rains set in, and not only clear every bush and low tree in their path of all insect life, but also enter houses. Their sudden arrival is often announced by the scuttling across the floor of some alarmed cockroach pursued by one small ant, which does not look like a formidable enemy. But the cockroach knows better, for the one little ant is but the forerunner of an enormous army, and very soon three or four others appear and join in the pursuit, and the fate of the cockroach is sealed. When a house is thus invaded, the rightful owners can do nothing but give it up for a time to their uninvited guests. Unwelcome we can hardly call them, because in hot countries many creatures which pay neither rent nor taxes are in the habit of establishing themselves in all parts of the house, and now, at the first notice of the approach of the ants, away they all rush as fast as they can go. A lady who has lived for years in Trinidad says that the arrival of the ants is hailed with delight, for they investigate every corner and crevice in the house, the walls, ceilings and floors being black with their countless legions. But when they have thoroughly explored the premises, which takes but an hour or two, they leave them quite cleared of all living things which have no business there. Rats, mice, snakes, cockroaches, spiders, scorpions, and even the fleas have vanished for at least one or two months, and the lawful owners can live in peace. The ants themselves decamp when their work is done, or should they linger may be easily dismissed, it is said, by a little cold water. The driver ants of Africa, which also enter and clear houses, are reported to kill even the great python and the ants of the American plains are employed, according to Mr. McCook, as vermin-killers by the Indians, who spread their furs and blankets upon or near an anthill, and soon find them perfectly cleared of eggs, larvae, and insects. Strictly speaking, however, it is not when they prey upon the living, but when they keep to their usual diet of dead insects, that these American ants can be regarded as scavengers. The small red fire-ant, Mr. Bates says, though found in most open places along the banks of the Amazons, wherever the soil is sandy, seems to have its headquarters at Averos, a village on the tributary Tapajos, which is completely undermined by its galleries. The Tapajos is nearly free from the insect pests of other parts, a fact which may perhaps be put to the credit of the fire-ant. 
but the latter seems to be as great a plague as all the rest together. At one time Averos was actually deserted in consequence of their attacks, and though their numbers were supposed to be diminished at the time of Mr. Bates's visit, the houses were still overrun with them, they disputed every fragment of food with the inhabitants, and destroyed clothing for the sake of the starch. Eatables had to be suspended from the rafters in baskets, the cords being well soaked in a kind of balsam. So malignant and unprovoked are their attacks, that the cords of hammocks must be smeared with the same balsam to keep them off at night, and those who would enjoy an open-air chat with their neighbours in the evening must rest their feet on stools, and sit on chairs, the legs of which have likewise been well smeared. At Eger, on the upper Amazons, Mr. Bates had to keep his specimens in cages suspended from the rafters by cords well anointed with a bit of vegetable oil to preserve them from the attacks of the ants. A curious fact has been observed with regard to the mound-building ants, whose nests contain certain chambers which appear to be lumber-rooms, some of them being filled to the roof with husks, hulls, and decayed or mouldy seeds, and then sealed up, presumably in order that the contents might not be unpleasant to the inmates. Others are filled with gravel, which Mr. McCook believes to be what remains over after the roofing of the mounds. For these ants invariably cover the top of their habitations, which are sometimes thirty or forty yards round, and from one to three feet high, and the covering consists of sand, gravel, small pebbles, with little bits of limestone, fossils, coal, gold dust, fragments of valuable minerals, whatever, in fact, they may happen to bring up in the course of their excavations. Ants in India have been observed to ornament their nests with garnets from the sea-sand, and their relations in England carry off bits of amber-like resin, whether for food or decoration we cannot say. But there seems no reason whatever why they should not like to have pretty things or even curiosities about them, since they are so extremely human in other respects. Another inhabitant of South America, the Biscatcher, which is like a large rabbit, collects bones, stones, thistle-stalks, and hard lumps of earth round the mouth of its burrow, and has been known to add a gentleman's watch to its treasures, while the satin-birds of Australia erect bower-like structures of twigs and branches, which they adorn with coloured feathers, bones, and shells. These curious covered arcades are sometimes several feet long, and seem to serve as a common pleasure-ground for a number of birds, which amuse themselves by running in and out. Footnote, the jackass penguin, according to Mr. Mosley, collects in and about its nest small stones, shells, old bits of wood, nails, rope-ends, old sails, boat-spars, even forgotten bags of guano, and anything else which may chance to be left in its neighbourhood, but this seems to be for purposes of drainage. End of footnote. The mere size of the ant is, of course, no reason at all against its taking pleasure in similar collections. Sir John Lubbock is, at all events, of opinion that they may take pleasure in keeping pets, for as many as forty different species of minute beetles are found in their nests, some of which are so thoroughly domesticated as never to be met with elsewhere. 
the ants take great care of these beetles and are as anxious to remove them as their own young to a place of safety should the nest be invaded but as beetles are the great insect scavengers it seems probable that some at least may act in this capacity to their hosts who keep a blind woodlouse for the same purpose apparently the latter however they treat with the utmost unconcern and leave behind to shift for itself when they migrate according to mr belt the saoba or leaf-cutting ants like the termites are in the habit of growing mushrooms but in a still more systematic way since they supply them with the proper soil or manure in the shape of leaves the blossoms of certain plants and the inside white rind of oranges all of which are torn into minute shreds certain it is that some of their chambers are often three parts filled with a speckled brown spongy-looking mass which on close examination is seen to consist of tiny bits of withered leaves overgrown by a very small white fungus and should the nest be disturbed the ants are evidently most anxious to carry every morsel of this food under shelter and when they migrate invariably take it with them it is also certain that they do not eat the leaves themselves so one can only conclude that they need them for the purposes of cultivation the refuse particles when exhausted as manure are stowed away in deserted chambers and serve as food for the grubs of beetles rose beetle grubs are often found in the nest of the wood ant probably for the sake of the chips of wood fir needles etc which they need for their cocoons nor are ants the only creatures which keep scavengers some of the larger spiders allow certain small species to live on the outskirts of their large strong webs and to feed on such minute insects as are beneath their own notice and would otherwise not only be wasted but become a nuisance by choking up the web mr darwin tells us that the booby and noddy of the desolate st paul's rocks where nothing in the shape of a plant not even a lichen grows have their attendant scavengers in the shape of a woodlouse a feather-feeding moth and a beetle among the most important scavengers we must reckon the flies since there are very few which do not at one time or other of their existence feed on decaying matter animal or vegetable flies are the first to attack any dead body which may be left exposed and by perforating it in all directions they open and prepare the way for the host of beetles which follow them linnaeus the great naturalist declared that three flies were equal to a lion as regards the length of time they would take to demolish the carcass of a horse and this will not seem by any means impossible when we learn that each flesh-fly produces sixteen thousand to twenty thousand maggots which are hatched in her body and are therefore ready to begin feeding at once which they do so voraciously that in many species they increase their weight two hundredfold in twenty-four hours the larval state of all insects whether butterflies moths beetles flies etc is the grand feeding time when indeed the grub maggot or caterpillar does nothing but eat and as soon as it is full fed prepares at once to enter on the next stage of its existence flies do not wait for decomposition to set in before coming to feed and deposit their eggs or young or rather perhaps 
since decay actually begins as soon as life ceases we should say that their senses are keener than ours in detecting it a mouse has been known to be full of their maggots two or three hours after death and every butcher knows to his cost how attractive his meat is even when freshly killed human beings endowed with the ordinary sense of smell are able it is said to detect the three hundred millionth part of a grain of musk but insects require a very much smaller degree of odour to guide them to their food thus it has been noticed in ceylon that in a few moments or even less from its death an elephant will be covered with myriads of black flies not one of which had been visible before not only can no odour whatever be detected by human noses but the sudden arrival of the flies is often the first intimation to the bystanders that the animal is really dead yet some extraordinarily subtle odour there must be and it must have travelled through the air with a speed which is equally extraordinary white sugar is to us utterly without smell yet sir j emerson tennant mentions that the smallest particle though wrapped in paper and placed in the centre of a table is quite enough to attract the small black ants a line of which will be formed in a few minutes to effect the removal of the delicious morsel flies seem to be guided by scent and scent only for when she cannot get at the meat the bluebottle or blowfly will lay her eggs on the wire gauze meat cover and in this case one would say she must be deceived by the smell for she can hardly know that though it is beyond her own reach her eggs will fall through and her children thus find their necessary food it is at all events quite certain that gauze is no sufficient protection against her and her family in tropical countries where the extreme heat and dryness of the air combine to shrivel up any dead body so rapidly that it can hardly be said to putrefy and so completely that travellers in the woodless pampas can make their fire of a dead horse carrion beetles though not absent are not numerous on the other hand they abound in damp temperate climates where the slow rate at which decomposition proceeds makes their services especially valuable many feed both on animal and vegetable matter especially on fungi in a state of decay and their numbers are so vast that we can mention only a few of the most active foremost among them are the sexton or burying beetles whose scent is so keen that they come from great distances to find their food in the vicinity of towns they feed on all manner of garbage hunting in couples and chiefly at night the male insect wheeling round and round in the air like an eagle before pouncing on his prey after a careful examination of their booty perhaps a dead bird they proceed to make a hearty meal and then explore the immediate neighbourhood for a spot where the ground is soft enough in which to bury the remainder this found they drag the body with much labour to the place and the male insect begins operations by digging a furrow all round the body at the distance of half an inch using his head as a spade another furrow is dug within the outer one and so on until after several hours most laborious work during which the insect has been obliged at times to rest from sheer fatigue he at length goes underneath the body and pulls it by its feathers into the hole scraped beneath 
his wife meanwhile has been quietly seated among the bird's feathers and now allows herself to be buried with it her husband treads down the body shovels back the earth treads it well in scrutinizes it carefully to make sure all is right then makes a hole in the still loose earth and burying himself rejoins his wife the great object of all this hard labour has been to secure a proper place for her in which to lay her eggs which she does in a number proportioned to the size of the bird after which the two creep out and fly away the great business of the larvae as we have said is to eat and the parents are careful to provide them with food enough though not too much to last them until they are full grown and the larvae do their work well wasting nothing but consuming even the skin and bones sometimes so miss staveley tells us the sexton beetle makes a hole nearly a foot deep to receive the carrion and will bury creatures many times larger than himself such as birds frogs and even rabbits if the body is too large for one others come to help and to feast with him in ceylon one beetle has been seen to bury a mole forty times its own weight without assistance and four together will bury a crow the phaneus a beetle one inch and three quarters long with one large horn buries dead snakes in a few hours mr westwood mentions that in the course of fifty days he has known four beetles to bury four frogs three small birds two fishes one mole two grasshoppers the entrails of a fish and two pieces of ox liver it is indeed chiefly owing to their burying habits that we may wander for hours in the woods or fields without seeing such a thing as a dead bird mouse rat etc some of the burying beetles work in company others alone and while some as we have seen dig with their broad flat heads others do so with their forelegs their scent is so keen that they can detect their food from a wonderful distance and they have been known to undermine the stick to which a dead mole was fastened in order to bring the dainty morsel within their reach besides the sextons there are in england alone many hundred species of beetles which feed on carrion without burying it and as soon as the flies have opened the way they arrive in hosts accompanied by wasps hornets and ants the last relics of the feast being consumed by a tribe of small beetles so that nothing is wasted carrion feeding beetles like other larger carrion feeders though invaluable in the service they render are themselves decidedly unpleasant owing to their extremely strong and disgusting scent the hands will smell for hours and the coat for days after being in contact with them unless indeed they happen to have been fasting for some time from their highly seasoned food when they are quite free from smell many of the carrion feeders prey upon the living as well as the dead and as before said eat decayed fungi and other vegetable matter some lie in wait on the banks of rivers and devour the dead dogs cats etc thrown up by the water as well as small mollusks alive or dead they will in fact clean your shells and skeletons as well as the ants but with all their usefulness grievous are the complaints made against some of the race especially those known as skin-eaters 
these render infinite service as we are assured but at the same time they and their minute grubs will entirely destroy your books eat up your furs and your natural history collections besides invading your larder and feasting upon the dried meat bacon etc so injurious were they some years ago in the large skin warehouses in london that a reward of twenty thousand pounds was offered and offered in vain to any one who could devise effectual means of preventing their ravages they are commonly found in the bodies of moles stuck up in the fields to dry and will consume not only the flesh but the skeleton nothing in fact comes amiss to them for they will devour horns hoofs and leather even in the form of old shoes mr buckland says that he has never found a dry body of an animal that had not in and about it specimens of the domestes lardarius or bacon beetle called a hopper by the ham and bacon merchants footnote hoppers are the larvae or grubs End of footnote they are he writes quote, capital skeleton makers and if the skins of the creatures in the gamekeeper's museum be removed the skeletons will be found underneath in a most perfect state of preservation and quite fit after a little washing for the cabinet the late mr baker of bridgewater took advantage of their powers by setting them to work to make skeletons of delicate things such as small birds fishes frogs lizards etc neat workmen are these little hoppers touching nothing but the flesh and they clean much better than ants the animal to be made into a skeleton should be soaked in water to get all the blood out then dried and placed with the hoppers in a covered box a few birds feathers should be put over them as they will work only in the dark End of quote. Another great family of beetles is well known by their peculiar habit of turning their tails over their backs after the manner of scorpions, which has earned for them the name of cocktails. They are also called rove beetles from their great agility, and short wings, because their outer or sheath wings are so short that the long wings they use in flying need packing and arranging before they can be tucked away underneath this they do with the tip of their tails and hence are obliged to turn them up over their backs but the movement seems also to be made in self-defence possibly with an idea of inspiring terror and the devil's coach-horse one of the largest and commonest species more than an inch long certainly is a repulsive and ferocious-looking insect most of the little black flies which annoy us by getting into our eyes are really minute cocktails some no thicker than a horsehair and much of the irritation they cause is due to this habit of turning up their tails the instant they alight there are about a thousand species of cocktails and all are extremely voracious and all more or less scavengers one called the fish-fly is most unpleasantly abundant on the shores of newfoundland where it feeds on the dead and dying cod but they do not confine themselves entirely to carrion and some of them are extremely ferocious not only hunting their prey but attacking and devouring their own kind many especially the coach-horse are inveterate insect feeders and as such ought to be looked upon with favour by the gardener dung beetles of which there are many hundred species 
are especially numerous in the tropics where animal life is most abundant and first among them is the great scarabaeus tribe species of which are found in all the warm parts of the world the sacred scarabaeus of egypt which is hornless is common in the south of europe and throughout africa it has a very odd appearance when walking as its legs are set far apart but it is this peculiar structure which enables it to roll along a ball of dung from an inch and a half to two inches in diameter which it does standing almost on its head and pushing the ball with its hind legs much as a horse backs a cart the earth being usually hard and stony in the countries where the scarabaeus chiefly dwells it has to search for a soft spot in which to bury the ball which is exactly proportioned in size to the number of larvae it will have to feed the labour of rolling it is great for it is never quite round but the persevering beetle toils on with wonderful determination though obliged now and then to stop and rest before it can continue its exertions tired or not however nothing will induce it to give up the precious ball in which it has laid its eggs though it will be equally well satisfied with the ball of a neighbour and shows no other mark of attachment to its offspring which when once buried with their supply of food are left to care for themselves as they are well able to do black is the usual colour of the various species of scarabaeus but some are resplendent with the richest metallic colours some of the species add carrion to their other diet and feed on dead fishes besides acting the part of sexton to dead snakes which they speedily bury there is no english scarabaeus but we have many beetles which are similarly useful some being especially plentiful on turnpike roads and others in pasture fields the earth borers as one large family of various species is called dig with their forelegs which are especially adapted for the purpose being powerful and notched though hardly to be seen in hot dry weather the rain has no sooner softened the ground sufficiently for their operations than they appear in swarms and work with astonishing rapidity both clearing away what is offensive to sight and smell and turning it to account as manure for the fields thus doing a double service which is of the greatest value of all the english species not one is more useful and active than the heavy unwieldy dumbledore clock or flying watchman which is often to be seen lying helplessly on its back the door is usually of a glossy violet or blue-black sometimes greenish-black and sometimes quite black but whatever its colour it is always glossy and always clean in spite of the very unclean nature of its work in which as in all other respects it may be considered a model scavenger though how it can escape unsoiled is a mystery it is sometimes found in decaying fungi but it is usually attendant on cows and mr wood mentions a pasture field which was entirely cleaned by it in the course of three or four days the ground being literally riddled with as many as forty or fifty burrows in each square foot unlike the scarabaeus the dumbledore has no need to spend time and strength in search for a convenient spot for its operations it merely digs through the patch which is to be removed carrying some with it to the bottom of the hole which is as many as twelve inches deep it then lays one egg crawls up to the top 
and sets to work again on another burrow a truly gigantic work when one considers the size of the workmen employed a vast army must have been engaged in clearing the field mr wood describes for it would as he says have occupied a strong body of men a considerable time and then after all they could not have manured it as the beetles did without first removing the turf has it ever occurred to us to consider what becomes of the old birds nests were they left to accumulate from year to year the trees would be so clogged with them that as mr wood points out they would be unable to put forth their leaves and must therefore die beetles and moths however come to their aid and by devouring the sheep's wool feathers etc with which the nests are lined make it easy for wind and rain to scatter the other materials two species of moths are especially given to attacking old greasy clothing such as horse-rugs which have been left untouched for a few days others turn their attention to carpets and carriage linings and another whose proper food is also wool will eat hair of any kind even horsehair and will shave the fur off a skin more neatly than a razor the tinida epigraphia is the smallest of all moths says alphonse carr quote, being two lines wide when its wings are outspread but how magnificently it is attired it is robed in gold and silver and on the silvery gauze of its upper wings is traced in letters of gold an inscription which no one has yet succeeded in deciphering though i fancy i can read it thus maximus in minimis deus god is greatest in his smallest works in their larval state these moths eat furniture silk dresses furs and even make so bold as to attack the fur caps of the grenadiers End quote. End of chapter fourteen